welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and, of course, the fabulous Christopher. Chris, who have we got on today? Evening, Alina. I am... We've done a lot of depressing stuff recently, so we've gone for a bit more fun this week. We've got Natasha Tidd, who is a historian and a writer. Uh, She has written for several magazines and publications, including quite recently on Walter Sholto Douglas and Godland's Hidden Histories. But she's here today to talk to you about her debut, the fantastic A Short History of the World in 50 Lies. Natasha, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Thank you. That's such a nice introduction. Thank you very much. We're doing lies. And by the way, FYI, it's everybody. We just ranted for the past 10 minutes. <laughs> so we are going to rant at you all over again because I picked up on one of the questions. And of course, you, you guys know what I'm like. It's one of my favorite type of questions. So we're definitely going to do some ranting in this for sure. And these two have been ill. We've been yep. putting off this yep. podcast. So finally, I've got non-sick people to finally healthy people. Hello, healthy people. <laughs> Hello. Still a little bit sick, but doing my best. No comments from Chris. <laughs> I was dying. <laughs> Is that a man dying or an actual physically dying? Um, as I, as there's no woman living here to ju- to measure it, I'm going to go with an actual dying. Probably should have gone to the hospital, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's too far. Mid- oh, no, I can get away with this. Midway Hospital is a death trap. If you go in there, you don't come back. So I'm uh, <laughs> take my chances at home. <laughs> We're going to kick off with the first question, and I'm probably going to pronounce there's too many words in here that I'm going to mispronounce. So feel free to laugh at me left, right and centre. So one of the first lies that we're going to tackle is about the real Bardia. So who was the real Bardia? So there's actually a little bit of background for this. I have a horrible feeling I'm going to keep saying this and be like, well, before I answer you, you're fine. Let me do some background. Background us away. Okay. Um, so to, before we can kind of get into the real Bardia, it's important to kind of say, so this story primarily comes from Darius the Great. And if you're like a massive ancient history fan, it's probably a key figure that you've come across a lot. Um, if you're not, Darius the Great was the third king of kings of the Achaemenid Empire. Um, he was known for his strength as a ruler and consolidation of power and wealth of the empire that he took over. Um, so the Ackerman Empire itself begins its formation in around 550 BC um, and was built from the success of Cyrus the Great, who's in the space of about his 30 odd year reign, um, massively expands the empire and conquers the new Babylonian Empire, among some others as well. Um, and Cyrus has two heirs. So Darius isn't even in the picture yet. Cyrus's two heirs are Cambyses and the titular Bardia. Um, so Bardia was actually probably the best one for the job, um, but he wasn't the eldest. The eldest was Cambyses, and he was a little bit unstable. That's kind of what he was known for. But as the eldest, he got the crown. And this is kind of where Darius's tale comes in. So there are multiple different versions of this. So 
the version that I'm telling, you might have heard something different, but this is the most common. So uh, around 525 BC, Cambyses has a series of prophetical dreams in which Bardia has taken control of his empire. So he does the most natural thing that anyone would do, which is have his brother secretly assassinated. Mm -hmm. Sounds reasonable. Reasonable, standard. Um, But this meant that when Cambyses died around 522, there was no heir. So a usurper king claiming to be Bardia took his place. And obviously Darius, who was one of Cambyses' lance bearers, knows that the real Bardia is dead and that this is a usurper and this is a fake king. So heroically, he kills Bardia and takes the crown for himself. Um, And this is the story that he tells. He actually inscribes it in the Behistun inscription. Um, and if you look at a lot of different sources, so um, Herodotus, everyone's favourite grandfather of history. No, include... no, he is not. I was go- being flippant. Oh, thank God you were being flippant. <laughs> oh, my days. I was about to have a heart attack. I'm literally about to slag him off, mate. Don't worry. Oh, my thank you, by the way. And um, if Raoul is listening to this, I love you. You're a fabulous historian. Don't hate me. Keep slagging. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot like, you know, like, to, to go back to, like, university, obviously there's a lot that we can learn from Herodotus and, like, the way that we tell history and how we see history and stuff, but that's not necessarily to say everything that he says is 100% true. This definitely isn't. So he actually gives a similar-ish version to Darius's, um, but in one version of the ones that he says, the usurper Bardia is actually two brothers, um, one of them's like the puppet master and then the younger one's a guy called Smurdus who takes Bardia's place and the only reason this is great the only reason that anyone knows that he's not the real Bardia is he doesn't have ears <laughs> I'm sorry what <laughs> this is a bit of a giveaway I wouldn't have thought but apparently no uh, <laughs> um, and that's how they work it out so basically like I say, there's multiple different versions. I'm sure a lot of people listening in will be like, well, I've heard this and I've heard this and this one isn't the right one. None of them are the right one because none of them are true. And so basically we actually have to think about, okay, well, let's be real. Darius, you know, he probably wasn't heroically coming in and killing the usurper king. And the reason that we know this is that Bardia wasn't killed in 525 BC um, when he was supposedly secretly assassinated. There's um, documentation that he was in Persia acting as regent ruler when his brother was out fighting in Egypt. And from Babylonian documents, we can see that in about 522, Bardia appears to have started a campaign against his brother and he's named King of Babylon, King of Lands. So what seems to have actually happened is after Cambus has died, Bardia took the crown as the rightful heir. Um, and then Darius fabricated this story um, to gain power. That's a bit sneaky. It's very sketchy. It's very sneaky. I will say, you know, it's, it's one of the things that he is known for, but he is more, Darius the Great is more known for his actual reign. And I think part of the reason why is this is so excessively convoluted. And depending on the stories that you believe, it can, I mean, trip into the light. Fantastic would be like one way of saying it, but... <laughs> I mean, when you say Darius, for me, the first thing that pops up are the Persian Wars and then obviously hmm. uh, 300, because we love that film. <laughs> do we? Do you know what? If I step away from it historically, it's a great film. I love it. It's awesome. Nice, oily men and, you know, fighting for Eva freedom. There's... Sorry, Chris? Eva Green's in the sequel. Gee, I mean, is there a sequel? I don't there know There is. Hmm. 
There is. I've not there... seen either of them, but I know Eva Green's in it. I'm sorry, what? Well, there aren't any German warships in it, so... There are ships in the second one. Yeah. But do you I know, really watch things of German warships? Green. No, I watch Star Wars too. <laughs> so flying ships, basically. <laughs> Germans in space. I was going to say a little bit German in time. <laughs> uh, talking of like, spin doctors and people, awesome people writing their, their idea of history after it happened, what were all the crimes of Empress Wu? Oh, so this is actually one of my favourite ones in terms of how divided the potential narratives you might read on her are. Um, obviously, I can't put at the beginning of the chapter in the book, like, everyone stop what you're doing, go give this a Google, and just see the massive variety of what will come up. Um, and they're so, it's, it's very entertaining because they're so dated. So you'll get books from, like, the 1960s that are, like, villain! And then books from, like, the 1990s that are, like, complex hero! And then in 2018, around the time that, for some reason, we decided we had to affix the word badass onto any aspect of women's history, you'll find a lot of things that are, like, Wuzhatan, badass bitch! And it's, like... It, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, I just saw a little Can I make a guess here? Is it I'm gonna I'm gonna make a total just random stab in the dark. Is it that she was a pretty decent, strong-handed woman and all the sources around her basically tried to put her down and therefore that's why she's some sort of evil psycho bitch? Oh, a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. She's very complicated. Mm. And I would not say that she's a good person. Like I wouldn't, like, not even, like, I wouldn't have a pint with her. Like, I wouldn't want to be, like, around her vicinity at all. Um, but some of the things that she, it's, it's said that she's did is is just not the case. And the reasons behind it are actually very interesting. So um, just to give you a background, uh, Wu is the only woman in Chinese dynastic history to rule not as a dowager or consort, but as an empress in her own right. Um, she actually began her career as a concubine so she's in her early teens around 14 when that happens and then she rises up to the rank of emperor and her reign comprises a key part of China's Tang dynasty which is often called the golden age of China so she was a very very momentous kind of part in that and during her reign a lot of really really fantastic stuff happened but the thing that most people think about are the alleged um, crimes that she committed particularly those that are attributed towards her rise to power. Um, so there's a lot that she supposedly did. So I'll stick to the big ones. Um, so the first is that in 16, uh, in 16, it's going to rewind. <laughs> so the first is that in 654, she gave birth to the child of Emperor Gaozong and allegedly killed the baby so she could frame the emperor's wife, Empress Wang, and former favourite consort Xiao, resulting in their deaths and her rise to empress consort. So that alone would be an incredibly, you know, horrible thing to have done, to say the absolute minimum. Um, but then in 675, another of Wu's children suddenly dies, and this time it's her eldest son and the crown prince, Li Hong, um, who purportedly died just after an argument with his mother. And then, a few years later, Emperor Gaozong dies in 683. And again, she's linked to his death. So you have three deaths, um, five if you include the executions of um, Empress Wang and Zhao, that are most cited when it comes to the alleged crimes of Empress Wu. So what would you think about her now? Um, 
I don't want to be her child or having dinner <laughs> with her. So, but it's a good take. It's a good take. Yeah. Um, so I kind of unpack what's true and what's not from that. Um, but it's important to say that the first major time that we start to see this big historic shift um, in the narrative around Empress Wu towards framing her as this murderous villain and bloody ex-concubine kind of, that's kind of the theming that you'll find most around her, um, is actually during the Song Dynasty. It's important that it's then because Song Dynasty begins in 960 and comes after several decades of turmoil that happen just after the Tang Dynasty rounds up. Um, and it's often referred to as the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period. So during the Song Dynasty, a big effort was made to return China to a much less tumultuous state um, through promotion of Chinese identity and a revival of Confucianism. And this is where the issue comes in, because that extended to the approach that they had in terms of recording and remembering history. And Wu didn't fit the standards that the Song historians wanted to promote but her reign was too big of a factor to ignore. So a very, very big part in Song um, historians' work is basically um, talking about how one of the reasons that the Tang Dynasty is so bad, actually, is because it's barbarous in that it didn't um, subject women to more constraints and more control. And so Wu, being a female ruler, really doesn't fit into that if nothing else. And it's here that we start to get this incredibly villainous narrative appear. And it's here that we start to get this like incredibly villainous narrative appear. Um, and so we start to see a lot of picking and choosing of stories to create a certain framework which fits their ideal narrative, which as we know is absolutely the best way to do history. That's what we should all aim for. Um, so for example, one of the most contemporary sources about Wu Zetan um, states, I'm just going to read this. Uh, she killed her sister, slaughtered her brothers, murdered her emperor, and poisoned her mother. Both gods and humans hate her. This was actually written to gauge support for a rebellion against Wu at the time. So it might be a contemporary source, but it's an incredibly biased contemporary source. And if we're only using incredibly biased contemporary sources, we're going to get a very, very flat idea of who this person was. And so that's very much the story that starts to kind of happen. It's these very, very biased stories, very unstantiated rumours that come from similar sources. And it's just this very, very flat, one-sided story. But if we actually look at it on the whole, of those big deaths that are linked to Wu Zetan, we know that it's incredibly unlikely that she did some of them, not all. <laughs> um, so it's incredibly unlikely that she killed her son or her husband. So for her son, prior to his death, there are contemporary accounts talking about how he has a debilitating long-term illness. And so it's likely that's what happened. Um, I think some modern historians say it might have been tuberculosis or something similar, but again, we don't really know. Um, and then for Emperor Gaozong, he has a huge stroke in uh, 660. And then that leads to incredibly failing health until his death. So again, that's probably what caused that. As for the baby, we don't know. That That's the tricky one here, is we have absolutely no idea. Um, it could have been natural causes. It could have been murder. Um, it's worth pointing out that there is absolutely no concrete contemporary evidence from the time that it was murder. Um, so it's more likely, arguably, that her baby died of natural causes. But that being said, she did use her child's death to frame two innocent women 
and have them executed to have her rise to power happen. So it's one of those really difficult things where it's not like an easy answer. It's not like an easy route. Um, but I think it's one of the great examples, I think, fairly like at the front of the book that shows just how easily history can just go completely off track into one direction and how easy it is to have these really biased accounts that we just believe. But also a kind of example of, because you'll still find so many places say that she's this evil, evil woman, or she's a badass bitch that took no prisoners, when actually it's incredibly complex. And it's kind of that example of being like, taking the easy route rather than actually going into something a lot deeper i mean there's a lot of women like that in in throughout history and they're portrayed like you said complicated they are complicated nobody is ever good or bad or nice or perfect it's one way one way or the other basically and i i agree totally agree with that right let's move on to the next one i'm so going to pronounce this wrong please correct me no you'll be fine so talk to us about the malice Maleficniariums. Please correct me. Well, I found out earlier that both me and Chris say it differently. So mm. I say Malus Maleficarum, but Chris, Chris, I'm feeling probably actually says it much better than I do. Mal- Malus Maleficarum, or, or the uh, original German of Hexenhammer, Hammer of Witches. Okay, right. Well, I'll use the Hexenhammer. So how did the Hexenhammer's lies have a lasting effect on society? And give us the background information. Oh, okay. I'm both. Okay, sorry. Uh, Let me know, by the way, if I'm just like absolutely tangenting on excitedly. Uh, (laughs) So the Malus Maleficarium, which I'm now going to say the Malleus, because again, I think Chris is probably on the nail on that one, um, (laughs) was uh, (laughs) written primarily by a German churchman and papal inquisitor called Heinrich Kramer. Um, So just to get this out of the way, Kramer is so incredibly sketchy just from the get-go. So he is a German churchman and papal inquisitor, as I said, but he has multiple crimes under his belt that were helpfully covered up mostly by the church, including theft and embezzlement. So his job is to find heretics, but then around 1480, he gets really into the idea of witchcraft, and this wasn't a new fascination. Uh, so around, I think it's 1324, we start seeing the Catholic Church categorising sorcery as heresy. Um, by the mid-1400s, we're seeing scholars devote entire books to working out what sorcery is and how dangerous it is. Um, and that would include the likes of Johannes Nieder, um, who we'll see later is, is a huge influence. And by influence, I mean plagiarising source uh, for grammar. <laughs> Um, so what he's interested in in terms of witchcraft really isn't new but he is somewhat of an early adopter but he hits a very very big snag in this so in about 1484 after conducting a series of witch trials and executions in southern Germany it's flagged that there's actually no legal precedent for what he's doing he's sort of just going in and killing people and riling up a crowd (laughs) I should should phrase that better (laughs) No, I love it. Keep going. <laughs> so again, it's like that there is no legal precedent for what he is doing. So he goes to Rome and he requests papal authority to recognise the existence of witches and allow inquisitors to prosecute them as they see fit. And he gets that. But the next year, he immediately hits another wall. 
because this time he's holding witch trials in the Austrian city of Innsbruck. So not long after arriving in the city, Kramer had come to loggerheads with a local woman. Oh gosh, I'm going to butcher her name and she's so great. I'm so sorry. Um, Helena Schubrun, who urged the community to stay clear of Kramer and his sermons. Basically, she's kind of saying, look, this guy is so obsessed with witches. If anyone's a witch, it's you. Um, And she's telling people to go away. So obviously she's immediately on his shit list. Um, And so he quickly kind of works out a way to decry her as a witch. However, um, during her trial, he says that she used witchcraft to commit murder. And his evidence is delving into her sex life, claiming um, sexual immorality. Now, this is the bit that gets a little bit surprising, I think, for some people. This actually didn't go down well at the trial. Um, the Innsbruck officials were kind of incensed that he was using a woman's sexual history as a way to prove witchcraft. You know, you know, it might seem surprising because obviously women's rights were not amazing. But for the officials, it's not so much a case of gender or sexual equality or anything like that, but actually counted at um, heresy. He's essentially coming in and saying her sexual deviance now counts as heresy. And they're like, mm, but does it? <laughs> what do you have to back this? And he doesn't really have anything. And so she's acquitted and um, he gets very desperate to claw back power and to kind of stay in Innsbruck and like make his witch trial thing work. Um, so he starts accusing more women, fabricating evidence, accosting witnesses. And then eventually in 1486, the city's like just boots him out of the city. They're like, absolutely not on your bike. <laughs> Um, So he gets very, very infuriated. And it's at this time that he travels to Cologne, where he writes um, the Malleus. So I learned earlier that Chris actually has a German copy of the Malleus, which is so cool. No, it's English, but it's just titled Hammer. Um, I'll I'll sort you out a link later. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you all know what's inside it already, right? The way I kind of say it in the book is just to like really, really simplify things is you can kind of divide it into three different parts. So the first is why witches are real. That's a tongue twister. And joined to the devil. Um, How witches practice dangerous magic and demonic magic and what inquisitors can do to catch a witch, gain their own confession and crucially execute them. So that's sort of the context of the book's very very simplified um and a lot of the book as i said earlier is cribbed from those earlier books around witchcraft from the early to mid 1400s um and also just some really fantastically made up personal anecdotes (laughs) that were almost certainly not true as well as um stolen bits of folklore and things like that and of course considering what went down in innsbruck he's sure to add in a lot around a woman's sexuality as a marker for witchcraft and this really really sticks and lessening the need for concrete evidence to try and prosecute a suspected witch. It's basically created a book that is kind of like everyone told me I can't do this and this and this and this and this look I'm now able to do it all and it comes with a papal seal so it looks very very official so it doesn't create the witchcraft boom that that that's going on that's that's about to happen anyway you know but it essentially massively assists in creating I suppose it's being called the witch um witch hunters bible and that really is what it is it makes it incredibly easy for people to do this but it's also incredibly malleable and it's very very easy to build upon you can kind of use it for whatever purpose you want and it's a great way of kind of getting away with things and making things as broad as possible 
But move, moving on from someone who's horrendous to women to the woman who birthed rabbits. <laughs> this yes. isn't um, this isn't a Peter Rabbit story, is it? <laughs> no, no. Um, although the book does have an illustration of a rabbit around the section, so <laughs> probably still don't read it to your kids, though. Just putting that out there. Uh, <laughs> the book actually has some great illustrations throughout, but yeah, not not suitable for children. Uh, <laughs> Bedtime reading, ladies and gentlemen. Bedtime reading. <laughs> the lady who birthed rabbits. Yeah. Um, so Mary Toft is the lady who birthed rabbits. Um, she's a young woman and she sparks a scandal in 1726 when it's reported that she's giving birth to rabbits and also rabbit parts. Oh, hold uh, on. Hold on. Please explain to me how you can give birth to rabbit. I mean, birthing rabbits is bad enough. But how are you birthing? What, you pop out an ear? I mean, I, there's not enough information where it's like, it was the left foot. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, this is a hoax. She's not actually giving birth to a rabbit. Essentially, what's happening is Mary's pulling rabbits out of her vagina. Or more accurately, midwives and doctors are pulling out of her vagina. Either way, it's basically like it's not time bedtime we're doing. You shouldn't have this as the magic act at your child's next birthday party. But that's essentially what's happening. Um <laughs> not actually very nice to think about it's one of those stories where like you'll see it all the time on like weird history um and then no one actually thinks about the physicalities that would actually have to happen for this to happen um and so yes that, that's how that's how it's happening and um just the, the rabbit's pretty much dead as well sorry everyone not talking like live bunnies oh dear god almighty this is just getting worse yeah um it it is gonna get a lot worse as well but not for the reason you think of and you said at the beginning of the episode it was really fun (laughs) did you guys read this (laughs) i like a good lively debate you know don't blame me (laughs) so basically um in autumn and winter of 1726 newspapers across britain are printing um the supposed medical marvel that is mary toft who can birth rabbits and the king sends down physicians to examine her. It's like a whole thing. And one of the reasons that this captures the medical world's um, attention in particular, and you have so many people being like, this is real, is it because it um, confirms a theory called maternal impression. So maternal impression is basically uh, the suggestion that, that what a mother experiences during pregnancy would impact the child she gave birth to. So you'll see some really weird examples from the time. So like... Um, the mum dreamed of nothing but currant buns and ate nothing but currant buns. And when her child came out, they looked like a currant bun. I don't know what that means either. Did, did <laughs> they have spots on their face? Like, I assume it's like they were spotty or something like that. There's like another one where a woman thinks of a frog a lot and then the child comes out supposedly looking like a frog. Really, really far down in history, um, the mother of the elephant man who's, oh gosh, I, John, John Merrick? Yeah. Yeah. His 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 mother supposedly had a similar thing and that's why he looked like that. Obviously it's not true. None of none of this is true. It's not an actual medical thing that can happen. But Mary claimed at the start of all of this that she saw a rabbit when she was starving hungry and working in the fields. And from then on she dreamed of nothing but rabbits and thus she gave birth to rabbits. So it sort of proves this theory that isn't real. Obviously, again, this is a very, very obvious hoax. And so within a couple of months, the hoax was had and the British press had a field day kind of mocking everyone that believed it. 
Um, and then um, Mary was publicly punished. She was detained and for a small fee, um, she would be paraded in front of crowds to jeer at her. That's um, that's brought back some really odd memories. We spoke about, God, I've, forgotten, uh, I've forgotten the historian's name, but she spoke about the uh, black slaves mm. in the 17th century in France and how they would be paraded around and leered at you know, just because they had, for example, a larger bottom mm. or a larger chest or larger thighs and things. It's just a massive flashback of that. Yeah, it's in, it's not a great time for being alive or justice or anything, really. If I'm honest with you, I wouldn't time travel back to that period if I could. One thing I think that is worth noting is that a lot of the things that you'll read about this never ask why this happened which is, I think, a very crucial question. So at the time, newspapers were like, oh, obviously she just wants attention, doing it for attention. You'll also find some modern um, kind of historical write-ups of it, that like she wanted attention and money. It's really important to know she basically got, I mean, she got attention, she didn't get money from it. And it was very unlikely that she would get money from it. But for a very long time, it's been put down as this happened. And the only reason it happened was like, Uh, I think you'll see even very, very recently, I remember I was doing research for something and something that was written in 2016 had the headline of um, how an illiterate woman birthed rabbits or something around that line. Like people have to bring up the fact that she was poor and illiterate and therefore just wants attention. It's very strange. Um, However, there is a rather fantastic historian called Karen Harvey. And Karen Harvey has done some incredible research, which delves deeper into this and comes out with a far more complex set of reasons and causes behind the hoax. So in the book, we talk about the hoax. And then I wanted to kind of spotlight the work that Karen Harvey has done. That's something that I wanted to do throughout the book. It's just whenever I get a chance to be like, here's an amazing historian. I think that's a really good thing to do, especially because there's 50 things in the book. And I'm hoping that they're like jumping off points for the reader to go and read more elsewhere. Um, So Karen Harvey is just one of the historians I wanted to kind of spotlight. Um, And one of the things that she brings up is that Mary and her husband Joshua lived in a small town of Goldamming, which was overseen by multiple levels of governance and had control over the day-to-day lives of poor people like Mary. And they oversaw things like rent, punishment, and just basically the overall shaping of um, people's lives that lived under them. And animals like rabbits, but also deer and fish, were frequently used as a symbol of this land-owning elite, on top of everything else we're currently restricting the poor from being able to access these kinds of plentiful food sources so literally just before the hoax happens so we're talking about the summer of 1726 mary's husband had actually been part of a protest against this which was part of a mass fishing trespass which is a crime by the way so this isn't like a small protest and so in the midst of this kind of ground roots protesting happened around her mary suffered a really really terrible miscarriage So she appears to have been fairly late in her pregnancy and the miscarriage actually lasted for several weeks. Um, And during this time, Mary was forced to work in the fields. And it's at that point that she has the infamous rabbit dream. Although she miscarried, Mary did actually appear pregnant. This is something that you'll know in a lot of the medical write-ups and stuff of the time of people who come to see her is that she looks pregnant. And that's partly because it's, it's fairly late and also just because I'm sure anyone who's had a miscarriage knows that that is a thing that can happen. Um, and so it's very possible that the community around her took advantage of this and had Mary appear to give birth to rabbits as a protest to the landowning elite. 
not only for the restrictions on poaching, but also the control over women and the lives of those around them. And we also know from Mary's confessions that the hoax was not her idea and that she was strong-armed into it by uh, the older women in her family and in her spouse's family, as well as in the wider community. And also that the hoax actually caused her a lot of physical pain to kind of do. Um, so it's one. It's, again, it's another one of those ones where like, it's such an easy story to write off. And it's so easy to be like, she birthed rabbits. It's insane. Silly poor lady. But actually, if you delve further underneath, again. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. There's just so much underneath it. And again, it's so much of like history sort of taking the easy route out. Like Karen Harvey is really one of the only historians who's actually delved into this. And this is such a well-known story. Like you will find this constantly in almost books like mine where they're like collections of moments from history this is one of those ones that you'll find almost since it's happened just appears again and again and again and it's taken so long for someone to really do such a solid deep dive into who she was and her life and it's it's, it's becoming a lot more common I know that there are a couple of like um, MA students and things like that who were doing more studies and stuff into this and long may that continue (laughs) it's 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 one of those things as well I think but it just kind of shows how far we still have to come in history. No, I agree. I agree. To be honest, I think the next question should be asked by Chris because I don't like naval questions. It's not that naval. I've seen this question. It's not that naval. Mm. Go for it, Chris. But, you go no, all I, naval. And I, I know you, the thing is, though, you want the one afterwards. So, uh... <laughs> how do you know I want the one afterwards? What's the one Cause afterwards? Because I, I write the questions, I know what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going to try not to. When I when I wrote read this earlier, I keep reading it as War of the Worlds, but it's not. How did the USS Maine have an effect on the War of Words? If it helps you, when I wrote it, I was thinking about War of the Worlds, and it's sort of an inject for me. So you get it too. I, I, I keep having thunder child to myself. <laughs> Um, yes, so the USS Maine. Um, so in the 1890s, there comes a term for a newly widespread form of journalism, which is called yellow journalism. So in the book, we actually spend quite a long time building up to this. There are quite a few different chapters that show the rise of this type of journalism and how the media was changed into basically what we might call fake news. So yellow journalism basically actively bent the facts or framed a narrative to make it more splashy or spectacular or fit a particular cause or means. So like I say, kind of fake news. This is a carry on from widespread hoaxes that we feature in the book. So we've got things like 1835's Great Moon Hoax, 
um, that one time Mark Twain decided to lie about a man going on a murder spree for some reason. Um, uh, the miscegenation hoax that happened during um, the uh, election around Abraham Lincoln. So there's a lot that builds up to this. But we kind of get to this point where, again, what we might call today is fake news is, is getting a lot more rampant. And at the head of this yellow journalism movements are two rival newspapers by people you will definitely recognise. So there is the New York World, which is run by Joseph Pulitzer. And the New York Journal, which is run by William Randolph Hearst. And so during this time, they're basically at war with each other over who gets the best stories and who gets the most readership and the most sales and everything like that. And the biggest ongoing story at the time is Cuba's fight for independence from Spain, with both papers sensationalising the stories and having reporters actually take part in the fighting, not just be there. Um, I think at one point it's in 1898, a journal, um, a journal reporter actually joined a battle against Spain and claimed their flag in the name of the journal. So we're talking, it's Wild West out here. <laughs> um, but to really, really boost the sales, both newspaper men knew that what would actually make such a news boom would be if the US joined the war to help Cuba. And then this is where the USS Maine comes in. So the USS Maine was sent to Havana Harbour in 1898 to oversee and protect US interests, partially in response, and very helpfully, because uh, Hertz and Pulitzer had been like, everything's going to go wrong, we have to enter the war, so that's why they're there. On the night of 15th of February, an accidental explosion on board the ship caused it to sink, which killed about 266 men. So within an hour of the explosion... Both Pulitzer and Hearst have arranged for teams to go down and scout the wreckage, with Hearst divers actually managing to explore the wreckage before the US Navy did. Now, it's really important to say here, this isn't like a crack team of divers who are used to this kind of thing. They're not the Navy. Um, and they did not do a good job. They'd never seen anything like this before. They'd never done anything like this before. And they were incredibly traumatised because the bodies of the sailors who just died are still in the water. Um, so they basically find pretty much nothing of use but the New York Journal takes absolutely no time at all I think this happens on the 15th um, and on the 17th the journal is stating that the USS Maine was deliberately destroyed by a Spanish torpedo it's really important to say the US Navy had not found this in fact they'd actually called off their search due to poor visibility but that didn't stop anything and so both newspapers now start claiming that there was a Spanish attack and that war is imminent and then this went on for weeks until in March, the US Navy's findings become public and they essentially say, look, there's no concrete evidence for this, but it seems most likely that the main accidentally hit a mine. And obviously, Hurst and Pulitzer are like, oh, my God, it was a Spanish mine. <laughs> Definitely 100 <laughs> percent. Um, and so obviously... You know, all this is coming out in the news and most Americans couldn't understand why their president was allowing such an attack to pass about ramifications. And not only are they talking about, oh, my God, we were attacked by the Spanish. Um, they're also doing things like interviewing grieving families who've lost people. They're having people kind of dramatically say, oh, this probably happened when it exploded. Oh, this is what one of the bodies look like in the water. Like they're really, really sensationalizing it. And it becomes an incredibly emotive issue and also a really patriotic issue as well. 
And so tensions are really starting to heat up and you have people, you know, politicians inside America, like we have to go to war. And so as everything ramps up and public pressure is ramping up, um, President McKinley issues a demand for Spain to allow Cuba its freedom. And then Spain's like, no, and abandons negotiations. And the US Navy quickly forms a blockade to kind of prove their strength. Um, and then on 23rd of April, Spain declares war, with America following on 25th of April. Um, and so obviously what happened here with the newspapers, it's not, this is not the reason for the war. You'll sometimes find people saying, and that's why the war happened. It's not. There's a lot of contributing factors. But to say that this wasn't a big contributing factor, at least to the public mind, would, wouldn't be right. Um, and it's also quite interesting because uh, Pulitzer in particular, he really struggled with his role in making this happen um, later on in life. And it became a very, very big regret of his. And um, the story says it's one of the reasons why the Pulitzer Prize was actually set up is to kind of make sure that there was more ethics going to journalism. Although there is, um, <laughs> I think not even that many chapters along, there's a story about a Pulitzer Prize winning um, piece that hid a uh, mass famine. So <laughs> clearly it didn't go that well, but that's in the book. Oh, my days. Do you know what? I think people have to go out and buy your book because this is just the tip of the iceberg. But, but when I read the next question, I was completely off ball, by the way, to everybody that's listening, (laughs) because the next, I'm going to read the next question. I'm going to tell you all why. So the next question is, what was the concentration camp like? Now, instantly, when I hear that, I'm thinking, oh, do you know what it is? It was that the British started the concentration camp system and that's what Hitler did. Hitler followed the design of what the British had started. It's totally not that. But just in case anybody wants to use that, you're using Hitler's words. You're fueling Hitler's propaganda. Don't use it. Uh, And also Hitler used the Kaiser system that they used in Southwest Africa in 1904, but that's nothing. (laughs) Exactly. Don't be like Hitler. Don't use Hitler's words. Learn your actual history. Anyway, tell us about what was the concentration camp line. Well, first off, you'll be really happy to know that there is actually a line in the book that points out (laughs) Britain did not invent invent the concentration camp. Um, So, I mean... Both of you will know more about this um, than I do because of your respective um, specialities. Um, but I believe um, it's like the third conflict to utilise them, I think. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. There was one in Cuba and one in Puerto, um, the Philippines, I think. Yeah. You know when you're like, oh, my research backs me, yes. <laughs> I've got to say, so I also actually backed up a thing that the proofreader said about concentration camps. So, boom, we were both right. Yes! It's a nice feeling vindicated, you know, and you're like, yes, thank God I'm right. What historian doesn't want to be right all the time? <laughs> Not <laughs> us. I was going to say, it's actually a big issue. Historians should be okay with being wrong. Anyway, uh, before I go on like a massive rant. Um, so, uh, the concentration camp, my, um, we are looking at the Second Boer War. For this one so i won't get into everything that caused the second world war or what happened in the second world war because i'm sure chris could tell everyone it far better than me and it is convoluted <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> um so jump in if you don't think i'm doing like the summary well enough chris so britain basically set up the concentration camps to take in predominantly women and children 
both um, whose homes have been destroyed. So initially it was like a refugee camp system, but then it kind of goes more into concentration camps as a means to prevent women from aiding fighters and helping guerrilla warfare. And then in 1901, the camps expand to include the black population who were kindly being used by both sides as slaves and soldiers. So that's sort of what's happening. So you have two separate camps as well. I should mention these are not integrated. So you have white camps, black camps. So the British military publicly promised that these camps were incredibly safe. They were really, really lovely. They were safe harbours from the war and they took care of everyone inside. Um, But earlier in that year, um, an anti-war campaigner called Emily Hobhouse managed to get permission to visit some of the concentration camps. Um, So the military actually barred her from viewing a lot of them and she wasn't allowed into the black camps. She was only allowed into a handful of the white camps, but she pretty much saw everything that she needed to. And they were mainly horrific conditions. Um, So in the book, we have a couple of quotes, but it is essentially lack of sanitation, rife disease and just incredibly high death rates. And also we have this problem of the camps are getting fuller and fuller and fuller and then not getting increased in size, then not getting increased with supplies. Like you're just pouring people in to an already desolate situation. Um, it's also kind of worth noting at this point how bad the black camps were compared to the white camps. So things were shocking in the white camps. The other camps were worse by far. Um, and so supplies to these camps were at a far lower priority. Um, and like shipments of alcohol for British troops were often put higher than food and medicine for what they called the um, native camps. And we also have um, a lot of anecdotal evidence. That's one of the really frustrating things about the two different um, kind of sides of the camp story. Is there just isn't that much information about this one because people just didn't bother gathering it. Um, And so we know anecdotally things like it wasn't rare for the only nearby source of food to be something like a long rotted animal corpse. Like it was bleak over there. Mm. Um, And so as Hobhouse is visiting all the camps, uh, Kitchener ordered um, British Major George Gordwin um, to do the same. And he found basically exactly the same thing. He found almost identical circumstances to what Emily Hobhouse would later come out and say that she find and he reports back. So the British know how terrible these camps are. That is the key thing here. We might be saying that they're great, but we know how awful it is. And so instead of acting on this information, the military opted to censor the goings on inside the camps and actually went so far as to inform the government that civilian aid and support could not be deployed, basically allowing them to further shield the truth. However, in 1901, Hobhouse released her findings in an expose that shocks Britain and immediately questions are asked. And whether he knew the case or not, I, 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 don't, I don't think that there is absolutely solid evidence if he knew or not. But the Secretary of State for War vastly underplayed how many people were in the camps, um, claiming it's around 63,000 The truer number is enormous compared to that. So we've got about at least 85,000 in the white camps and 32,000 in the black camps, at least. So he's massively downplaying those numbers. Um, And basically everyone jumps upon trying to defend this. Um, So, for example, um, everyone's favourite, Winston Churchill, um, uh, defends it in the Times. Um, I've actually, I've got the quote here. Um, So he says, it's in the Times on 28th of June, 1901. (laughs) Um, 
Would they, meaning the opposition, have refused to accept responsibility for the war women and children left in devastated districts, have left the women sitting hungry amid the ruins, the mind revolts from such ideas, and so come to concentration camps, honestly believing they involve the minimum of suffering? Basically, apparently a middle ground does not exist here. Either everyone dies or everyone goes to horrific camps where they probably will die or get a disease or something horrible is going to happen. Um, it's also worth noting a lot of the deaths were children. And because there really was no coverage of the black camps, this becomes an issue with the face of white women and children being kept in abysmal conditions. And really, that's what the British press goes for, is how horrible this is. Um, and that actually sort of plays into the government's hand because they can spin this as a woman's issue. And they essentially are like, look, you know, Emily Hophouse, you know, she's a woman. She doesn't get war. She's never been a fighter. She's never been a soldier. Um, she doesn't understand how brutal it is. And that's why she finds this so upsetting. But, you know, it's like the home. A woman's touch can go a long way. So they agree to form a women's group to investigate how the camp might be improved. And the women's group will go over there, investigate and report back their findings. It is incredibly unsurprising that they didn't put Emily Holphouse in this group. <laughs> Instead, and this is something I will say is left out on a lot of history about this woman. And I say this as someone who actually, you know, I quite like this woman. Not this part of her, but still. The um, commission was headed by Millicent Fawcett, who is a leading suffrage campaigner. She's the first woman to have a statue in Parliament Square very, very recently. And it's called the Fawcett Commission. And one of the reasons that Fawcett is chosen is that she'd recently publicly written in support of the camps, saying that they were necessary. Um, I won't go into it, but some of the things that she writes about them, a little bit of racism, a little bit of jingoism, to say it lightly. Um, So... Despite um, protestations by Emily Hobhouse, the Fawcett Commission decided to only visit the white caps. And in 1982, they put out their finding. And this is very interesting. They put a lot of the culpability on the women inmates, the mothers. So there's a line in um, their findings that basically says a lot of the causes of like children's deaths in the camps have been caused by, I think they call it a noxious compound given by poor women to their children. What they're not really saying is these women do not have access to medicine. They're basically coming up with like home remedies, herbal remedies, whatever they can think of. Um, and they're kind of doing the best that they possibly can in a terrible situation. Um, but that's ignored, really. And then Kitchener was like, yes, last scapegoat. And so he comes out And he says, um, I've also got the quote here, it is impossible to fight against criminal neglect of the mothers. I do not like the idea of using force, but I am considering whether some of the worst cases could not be tried for manslaughter. And so we're passing the buck. We're like, oh, I mean, obviously, you know, lots of deaths, really sad, lots of child death, really sad. Was it our fault, though? Or was it these women? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's bad. Um, the the government did act on the Fawcett um, Fawcett Commission's findings, and um, conditions were improved. But like, I don't know if you agree, Chris, but it's too little, too late, isn't it? Very much so. Also, just a quick side note: the reason the farms are destroyed, the British Army, yeah, were the ones destroying them. That's yeah, we, why we um, take a scorched earth approach. Yeah. So yeah, we did that. We made them homeless. <laughs> Yeah, and then Churchill, then, so it really, I mean, uh, Churchill annoys me at the best of times, uh, so it really does annoy me when he's saying, well, they, they see that or they stay at home and starve to death. It's because you're starving them, you 
<clears throat> yes. <laughs> Sorry. Oh no, that's, I mean that is that really is where it is. It, it kind of ends there, where um, you know we we take accountability, but so late in the day we might as well not have. Um, um, and so I've got some fatalities because who doesn't feel happy after that? Um, so in the white camps, over twenty six thousand died. Um, most were children, um, and in the black camps, uh, we don't know basically. Um, we just don't know. Um, the, the efforts made to record the numbers of prisoners and deaths was just not great. Um, and so it's estimated that at least 20,000 lost their lives. And it's important to say, although those figures sound very similar, there are less people in the black camps to begin with. So the, on average, their fatality rate is a lot higher. I think all of this is frustrating. I mean, I don't know how you can be a historian of the whole war and still be sane, Chris. <laughs> I devil in other things to keep myself <laughs> I think one of the things I find so frustrating is Emily Hophouse just basically still historically in women's history she gets like nothing like she gets crumbs like she's a footnote and I, I have a lot of I I mean I'm only introducing her having done this horrible thing for Millicent Fawcett but I actually have a lot of time for Millicent Fawcett in terms of the suffrage um, campaign um, but one of the things that really frustrates me and I'm sure that you've seen this as well Chris is when we talk about Melissa Fawcett, and especially in terms of recent modern women's history, this this is left out, or if it is included, it's like, and she made them change the concentration camps to be better. And you're like, oh, that's... Like, it feels very much like, I think there is an argument, especially for some leading figures in women's history, we're very close to doing what happened with Winston Churchill to these women where you're like, there were no negative things that they ever did. Everything that they did was great. And it, it, it's a huge thing to leave out. It's a huge, huge omission to leave out. So yeah, I was very happy I got to include this one, although it is something of a horrifying story. So on that bright and chipper note, uh, <laughs> like I said, whenever, whenever Alina's here, we end up talking about concentration camps and everyone wants to die. <laughs> Hold on, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> That's the ongoing joke that when you talk about you end up talking about concentration camps and everyone gets depressed. Love you too, Chris. <laughs> well, not not always, but but yeah, no, Natasha, this has been fantastic. Um, could you remind everyone the title of your book and where where they can get it from? It's out now, isn't it? It is, yeah. So uh, the book is called A Short History of the World in 50 Lies by me, Natasha Tidd. Well, so weird plugging it. <laughs> I like I it. I think it's fine. Um, so it is it's out in the UK now. There's also an audiobook version. Um, I don't read it. Don't worry. My um, nasally tones are not there. We have a lovely reader who does it instead. Um, so yeah, the audiobook is out now. It's also going to be available in a couple of other countries. So I know that the Netherlands translation is out now. You can buy it in English in a couple of other countries. If you're American, I believe it's coming out for you in June. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's currently going all over the shop. I think there's even a Chinese edition, which is super cool. Um, so yeah, it, you, you should be able to buy it pretty much everywhere and anywhere. Natasha, you're awesome. We have to get you back. Yes, please. A hundred, yeah, a hundred percent. Definitely. Anytime you want me. Right there. Yeah, I was going to say, we'll also try and get it on the uh, History Hack bookshop so that every sale we'll get a small amount of money you get more money than if it goes through a certain evil empire that is named after a rainforest it's depleting oh, uh, yeah. so don't buy it from them buy it from us we'll, we'll get the environment apparently thank you so much natasha thank you it's so nice to be here thank you so much guys our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book 
This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.